0: Hey, how's it going? My name's Brian, and um, I'm one of the pastors here, Brian Habig, and if you're visiting, special welcome to you. We're glad to have you here. Uh, we, let me tell you what we're doing. We like when we can in our sermons and worship to, uh, to go through books of the Bible, so we are in a, a, a wonderful book. It's the New Testament book of Romans. I'm saying book, it's really more of a, a long letter, an epistle, by the Apostle Paul. And so we're starting chapter 4. Of Romans this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow what I'm going to be referring to right there in the bulletin. So, Romans 4, beginning in verse 1. I don't know if any of you saw on TV or just somewhere on social media the clip of uh, Kevin Bacon. Jimmy Fallon brought him in to the Tonight Show. There's been a lot of Jimmy Fallon stuff since he took the reins of the Tonight Show. He brought in Kevin Bacon and he did this uh, sort of footloose esque dance opener to the, to the Tonight Show, made the rounds. Um, My question for you, though, is have you ever seen Footloose? Okay, well, I have. And if you know the movie, um, this archetypal 80s movie, you've got um, this character played by Kevin Bacon, moves to a small town, very religious town, very strict town, and uh, no dancing. And he loves dancing, and, you know, the kids want to dance, and he, he wants to dance, and he wants them to dance. But the city council's put the kibosh on it, so he gives this toward the end, this impassioned speech to the city council. And, and what I think did it for his case was he quoted the Bible. He quoted Psalm 149. Isn't it good to learn these things at church? Psalm 149 and Ecclesiastes 3, and that, you know, won the case. And, and he danced and he danced and he danced. Uh, tough crowd. <clears throat> A real-life example my friends would be, I've referred to this before, this was uh, 2001. Jesse Helms, congressman, one state up, very conservative, very to the right, invited Bono of you two, is there any other Bono, to Capitol Hill, uh, and it was a a Wednesday sort of lunch event on Capitol Hill to talk about um, funding AIDS research, in a ministry in Africa, or outreach in Africa. And, um, and Bono just won Jesse Helms over. And they are like from different solar systems, politically. And here's a quote. Bono got up to, to speak. He started his talk saying, it's an extraordinary thing, I'll admit, to have Jesse Helms to throw a lunch for you. You know it's bad for both of our images. And then he said, I'm very humbled. I'm having my world turned upside down, and I'm surprised that people should be so generous in letting an obvious outsider in. And Jesse Helms kind of stormed up to the microphone and said, you'll never be an outsider. You'll always be a friend here. And he just grabbed his hand and shook it. And you think, this is, this is amazing. And so Bono was asked, how did you win him over like that? And he said that when we talked about, uh, you know, what I'd say, I just I talked about the Bible. I just talked about what the Bible says about you know the least of these, the alien, the the needy, the poor. You know, it, it is great when you can prove your point with the Bible. You know, and, and when you can prove your point with that person's Bible, that's very relevant to this passage. And here's the reason: when you look in the Book of Acts about how the gospel went from just really being this thing that's just in Jerusalem or in Judea to something that's all over the world and it's in major world cities like Rome and Athens and places like that. How did, how did, how did that happen? You know, when, when an apostle or apostles, when they walked into a city and they don't know anybody, how do you start? And the mental picture we may have is just, you know, the Apostle Paul sort of setting up on the corner and just being a street preacher. And that's not how typically he would start. The way he would start is he would go to, if there was one, the synagogue. Because that was a community that knew what we would call the Old Testament. They knew the Bible. They knew the Law and the Prophets. And he would quote their Bible to them to say, I know the man who fulfills this. And I want to tell you who it is. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Quote their Bible to make his point. Now, this passage may be as close a thing as we have to... What what would he say in a synagogue to do that? I mean, it would be really cool to have a transcript of Paul's sermons or Paul's talks when he went to a synagogue and said, let me explain something you've never heard about. We don't have that, but this might be close. Um, Paul is writing to Christians in Rome. Probably over half of them are Gentile, but a bunch of them are ethnically Jewish. What, what's the church in Rome was probably originally the synagogue in Rome. There was actually a sizable Jewish population in Rome at this time. It was expelled, and then it came back. And here's what he's saying. Look, this gospel that I'm so excited about, this gospel that I want you to know, and I want the whole world to know, is not something that started with me. In fact, it's not something that started with Jesus. It's something that's in your Bible. Let me say one other thing, and I'm going to read this passage This this passage is good news for anybody, but I'll say this: if you are someone who's here this morning, and if you were honest, you would say, "I constantly wonder if I'm really in. I constantly wonder, have I done enough for God really to accept me? Sometimes, just when I put my head on the pillow and I finally get still and I finally get quiet, I do wonder if I, you know, like the old children's prayer, if I were to die before I wake, would I be okay? The way to know the answer to that question is to heed what Paul is saying in this passage. Because this is the best news I know. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, for the discouraged, would you now make this the food that gives them courage? Uh, For the sad, would you make this the food that gives them joy? Uh, For the cynical, would you make this the food that makes them believing and trusting? Lord, to the one who um, feels that they have plateaued, that they are stuck, would you make this the food that causes them to grow and to walk and to take strides? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, I was at a gathering with some other ministers and we were doing some training. And we had a speaker one day, he was a Christian counselor. And he told a story on himself, or made an observation about himself, and then he told a story about um, namelessly about a a patient. What he told on himself was, he said, I go in every day at 7.15. I see my first patient every working day at 7.30. Um, sees an amazing amount of people in one week, works, works very hard. He said, Do you know why I work so hard? And he told us, I work so hard uh, to show my daddy how hard I work. And he said, My dad died 12 years ago. And I go in early and I work long hours and I try to do a great job because I'm still showing my daddy um, I'm valuable. I'm I'm worth accepting. Then he told about a patient. This man, uh, maybe much like him, cranker, cranker, type A, driven, hard worker, very competent. And as he got to know this man, this man told a story about when he was a a little boy, and he said when he was uh, playing baseball, uh, he had four at-bats one game. He, He hit three home runs... At the fourth at bat, he hit a triple. And after the game, he got in the car, and his dad looked over the back seat and said, "What was the deal with the fourth at bat?" Decades later, cranker, goer, worker, driven—not to over-psychologize it, but what's he doing? Dad, I'm valuable. Dad, look at me, I'm worth accepting. Uh, It is unhealthy to do that with one another. And I think I've quoted to you what a friend of mine said, that we're all sort of walking around looking at each other, and we're asking the same question. And the question is, do you like me? And for many, many of us, this is a human thing, it's a very American thing, is the way that we work to get you to like me as we work. That could be skill set. That could be social accomplishment. That could be who likes me back. That could be your approval. That could be wealth. That could be acquisition. But through my doing, I want you to see that I'm valuable and you should accept me. Now, that's unhealthy with one another. That's not real love. It's lethal vertically. Um, When we're living before God and through our doing. And for some people, that's going to mean my work. For some people, that's going to be my family. How do I treat spouse? How do I treat children? For some people, it's going to be what kind of a friend am I? What kind of a a community person am I? What kind of volunteering do I do? How do I get my hands dirty? Just through some means, God, look at me. Can't you see that I'm valuable? Can't you see that you should accept me? Look at what I'm doing. All right, if if that's the way to God's acceptance, I would categorically put that under the banner, Bad News. If you're someone who fails, I fail. And I believe I'm looking at other people that fail. If you fail in the way to get God to regard you as valuable and to accept you and to know that you're accepted and not being a pressure cooker about it, if that depends on my doing... That is bad news. But what if there is a way to know that he accepts me and doesn't, not just tolerates me, like I guess I won't punish you, but like loves me and enjoys me and that I can know that that's there. And I can know that that's there when I do very, very poorly and I know I've done poorly. That's what this passage is about. And I would put that under the category of amazing news. The best good news. So here's what I want to look at. Did you notice the verb count? That the verb count is all through that passage, how God counts. I want to look at two things about how God counts. And the counting that we would regard as good news, that is. Here's the two things I want to look at. That the way God counts the good kind, it's old, it's not new. It's old, it's not new. Uh, the second thing is that the way God counts is by faith, not by works. It's by faith, not by works. Now, let's, let's look at the first one. That The way God counts that could ever be good news to people like us, that that's old, it's not, it's not new. Like I said the majority of people that are reading this letter for the first time in Rome are ethnically Gentile. I'd say over half. But some are ethnically Jewish, and they grew up with that. And and Paul talks directly to them in this letter. Now, look at what he says, because this sounds like he's really zeroing in on Jewish Christians. Verse 1, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? In the Bible, for them, the Old Testament... Abraham is the man. He is the man. David is monumental. He's the golden king. He's the king during the the high water mark of Israel. And here's what he's saying. If there's two people we know are in, those guys are in. Now, I think I've mentioned this before. Usually, when I sit beside people on flights, I don't have these awesome stories that preachers have where they lead people to Christ... They ignore me, or they fall asleep, or I try to make conversation, they shut down, or I say something wrong. Or I tell them I'm a preacher, over. And one time, though, nice exception, I was talking with a lady, asked what I did, told her I was a pastor, mercifully, she kept going. And uh, she said, well, look, here's my question for you. If you've got, like, the full spectrum of human beings, where over here is, like, a, a Hitler, you know, and you know he's not getting in, and over here, I think she said Mother Teresa, and you know she is getting in. What's the cutoff? There's such a great way to ask it. I mean, that was just a door you could drive an 18-wheeler through to talk about these things. So it's it's as if Paul is saying, well, look, wherever you would set that, original readers, I know you put Abraham and David in the category of they're getting in, right? So how did they get in? How did they get in? All right, verse 2. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. All right, so what is Paul saying? It can't have been through what Abraham did that we know he was accepted by God, viewed as righteous, and went to heaven. So how did it happen? Verse 3. He's going to quote from Genesis. He says, what does the Scripture say? Quote, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, okay, here's this thing, this thing about counting. What does that mean? It's not talking about numeric counting, counting with numbers. It's talking about counting the way we used to say it when we were kids and we were playing with somebody and your friend cheated. And then you you say what? That doesn't count. And when you say that, what do you mean? You mean, you don't get credit for that, you know, that run or that point or whatever. You don't get credit for that. That doesn't count. For something to count means you get credit for it. Paul quotes from Genesis and says, what does it say about Abraham? It says, Abraham believed God and it, and what's the it? Believing was credited to him as righteousness? Was Abraham's doing the reason that God regarded Abraham as a righteous man? Let me ask you another way. Did God regard Abraham as a righteous man because Abraham had done all the righteous things? No. God regarded Abraham as righteous because Abraham believed God, and this is very important. It's not just believed in God, the existence of God, although he did, but he believed God when God made him promises, when God said, Here's what I will do, trust me. Abraham trusted him, he believed God. That was how God regarded him as righteous. And then he makes a, a little history point here look down in verse 11. Now, I don't know if you kind of went asleep during this part because he's, he's talking about circumcised and uncircumcised, but there's a, there's a great point being made here. Look in verse 11. He, that's Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Why is that important? Paul's saying this. Go back in your Bible and look. Did God Did God come to Abraham and say, I'm giving this physical sign to Israelite men that will set you apart. Do that, obey me, and then I'll regard you as righteous. Is that how it went? No. Genesis 17 is when circumcision begins. Genesis 15, before that, is when God comes and He promises things to Abraham, and Abraham believes Him, Then, before circumcision, God credits that as righteousness. The trusting, the believing. And then there's another example from their Bible of David. I won't spend as much time on this, but look in verse 6. Now, just read along with me. David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works... Blessed are those who don't break the law. Blessed is the man who stops sinning. That's what it says, right? What does it say? Verse 7, this is from the Psalms. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds, i.e., they have them, are forgiven, and whose sins, i.e., which they have, are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin, even though he's got them. But God says, I know you have them. I know them better than you know them. But I'm not going to credit those to you. Trust me, and I will credit righteousness to you through you believing me. Why is the Old Testament so neglected by us? It's such a huge part of our Bibles. I mean, if you may not have one with you today, but next time you put your hands on a Bible, just put your fingers around the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament looks like a brochure, almost compared to the Old Testament. It is just a big, it's well over half, it's more like three-fourths of the Bible. Why is that so unfamiliar to us? And part of it's just the terms are more unfamiliar, the names of the cities and the people and Mephibosheth, and it's just, you know, it's harder to say these things. But some of it is the way we've heard it talked about, if you've heard it talked about, if you have that kind of background. Because often what we've heard is, look at this Bible character, look at this Bible hero, look how they did great things for God. Be like them and you, you go do great things for God. <clears throat> that's going to take you in two directions. It'll either take you the direction of, I think I will. So now you're set up for pride. Or, I can't. And now you're set up to despair because you feel like a loser. I, um, my wife and I saw the, the Noah movie a couple of days ago. And, um, and you're like, if you're new, I'm not a movie basher. I mean, I went because I wanted to see the movie. If you go into that movie... Ready to get mad about biblical discrepancies, you're just going to be, I mean, you're going to just be going off the whole movie because there's a truckload of them. Just know that going in. Artistically, there, I really think there's some amazing things, so it's a mixed bag. But, it, okay, no, no spoilers ahead if you haven't seen it. But the part where the, the surrounding town has the monster truck rally, and no, I'm just kidding, that's ridiculous. Just seeing seeing if you're with me. This is even in the commercial, so this is truly not a spoiler. But more than once in the movie, uh, the comment is made, Noah, he chose you for a reason. Noah, he chose you for a reason. And when you watch it in context, what's the reason? And the reason is that Noah obeys him, that Noah will do the hard thing. That theologically if we're going to be theological in the assessment, that's more troubling than some of the other discrepancies because that plays into something that we just sort of naturally do. Here's a heroic figure. Be like him, and you can be heroic for God too. Is Are the heroes in the Bible heroes because they were obedient enough for God to use them? You know what's the first thing it says about Noah in Genesis 6? Does it tell you what all he did? it says that he found favor. In Hebrew, it's chain, grace, with God. Is Noah and his wife, sons and daughters-in-law, are they on that ark because they were obedient enough? Are they on that ark because their faith was pure enough? They're on that ark because God was gracious, not because of what Noah had already done. Being saved by something God gives you rather than what you earn is old. It's not new. And when you begin to see that old good news in the Old Testament, it'll start to fire you up about the Old Testament because it won't seem so foreign. It'll seem like something that could actually help you and minister to you. Well, if it's not by works, it's by faith. Let's look at that. That this the way God counts is by faith, not by works. Look in verse four. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, if whoever pays you in your job, if they came to you at the end of your pay cycle and said, "Really, I just, I just want you to have this gift from us in, in our benevolence," you'd be thinking, "What are you, what are you talking about? I earned it. So it's not a gift." That's Our working agreement is I do these things and I'm paid this much. And so, like, these are wages. This is not a gift. You might not say it. You'd think it. Paul says, all right, if the way you know that you're right in God's sight, the way that you know that you're accepted by God is through you doing things, that would be wages. Is salvation wages? And then what does he say in verse 5? To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, justifies the bad people. His faith is counted as righteousness. Verse 9, second part of verse 9. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. The year that I started as a campus minister at Vanderbilt, Someone put an amazing article in my hands, and it ended up being almost prophetic for the next four years. It was an article that came out in Atlantic Monthly in 2001. It was by, um, at that time, a, a writer for Atlantic Monthly, David Brooks. He writes for the New York Times now. called The Organization Kid. It was the cover story. And what Brooks did was he went back to his alma mater of Princeton... And he just watched what the students were like, and he compared it to when he was there. He kind of caught late countercultural, sort of late hippie countercultural time, early 70s. So people, they lingered over meals a long time, and they debated, and they mixed it up, and they're sticking it to the man and all that kind of stuff. And everybody looks like a refugee at Princeton. And and then he looked around, and people were, they were punctual, and they were diligent, and they were organized, and they were hardworking. And he began to ask, how did we get from what I had to this? And he just takes you through kind of some American university and college history to say this generation, these millennials coming up, they have been on a track of quantifiable, measurable steps of academic progress and next phase and career building and resume building and just a whole team of coaches and mentors and blah, blah, blah. So don't be shocked that this is what you get. And Brooks makes this point. He says that, up to about the mid-20th century, the way you got in the top, top, top schools was you were part of aristocracy. You know, like if you had the right last name or your dad uh, was on the right board or held the right senatorial seat, then you could get in. And if not, then probably not. And he said, mid to late 20th century, it changed with all these other cultural changes. that who got in was not aristocracy. He's the, and he's the first person I've heard use this word it's meritocracy. If your accomplishments, if your resume, if your grades merit you getting in, if you're doing all this volunteer work, if you've got all these other skills, if you've already started a, a non-profit in Nepal when you were 16, and you run it, uh, and, have, and you start a magazine to talk about the nonprofit that you started in Nepal, like if you've done that, then you can get into Harvard or wherever meritocracy. And here's what I want to suggest to you. What if what Paul is giving us here, when he looks at Abraham, when he looks at David, what what if he's saying, there's an aristocracy of non-merit? That in the Bible, there's a thread that runs through the history of redemption. It's an aristocracy of non-merit. I mean, to this day, right now, to Muslims, to Jews, to Christians, Abraham is a royal figure. He is important to the vast majority of religious people on planet Earth. But what if the way to be in that aristocracy is not ethnicity and it's not even religious accomplishment? What if the way to be in that line so that you are identified with him and that you get what he was promised one day is through non-merit, and belief in God's provision for failures. Because that's what Paul is saying. Because that could be great news. and man, That is great news whether you are a Christian or not. Here's a name you may or may not have heard of, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones um, was a Welshman trained as a medical doctor, practiced as a doctor. His career was going straight up. He probably would have been Churchill's physician or something like that in London. Became a Christian and went into uh, the pastorate. So he's Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, but it's not divinity doctor. He's a medical doctor. Ministered most of his life in London. Wrote some books, one of which has never gone out of print. It's called Spiritual Depression. It talks about what do you do when you look up, and you, whatever the psalm means by losing joy, you've lost it. And you know what he says? And man, this is, like, this, is, this is like Christian psychotherapy before there was such a thing. He says, do you know where most of our spiritual problems come from? Is that we listen to ourselves rather than talk to ourselves. And you might be thinking, I thought talking to yourself was a bad sign, but what he means is what goes on in your heart when you look at your failures? I mean, like, okay, for example, let's say the mother of young children, who is, she's trying to do the right thing, and she's read books about being a godly mom, and she's trying to talk to other women about being a godly mom, and just one day it just goes down in her house. She's chewing people out, she's screaming. There's choice words used. Nothing feels good or pure or righteous about anything that happened the last hour. And she's just smothered in a sense of failure. Okay, now Lloyd-Jones would say, at that moment, what happens inside of you? Do you listen to yourself? Because if you listen to yourself, here's what self is probably going to say. One of, one of two things. You can dig your way out of this. Just be a super great mom for the next 48 hours, and then it'll bring us back to a healthy equilibrium. As you'll be covered with pride as you do that. Or the voice will say, You'll never dig your way out. You're a failure. Bad news bad news. And Lloyd-Jones says, what if instead of listening to ourselves, what if we talked to ourselves and said, okay, number one, that was horrible. Number two, that was horrible. Number three, who did Jesus come for? The people who do horrible things. And was, in the role, I'm in the role of the mom. Yeah. Was my mothering ever my righteousness? Was my mothering two days ago when I, it was a great day, a Facebookable day? Was that my righteousness? No. Is this horrible day my righteousness? No, Christ is my righteousness on the days I'm proud of, which is spiritually problematic, and on the awful days where I probably feel my need of Him more. What about for the non-Christian? You could believe the same two lies. Man, I don't know what's going to happen to me when I die, but you know what? I'm going to get on top of this. Is that good news? That you'll get on top of it? How is that going so far? But is it good news to just sit and go, you know what? I'll never measure up. I know good people, but I'm not one of them. And so you despair? You just kind of self-medicate to forget that you are not at peace with God. Or would good news be to say, this God will give me rightness, a right standing, a right position before Him. And not just tolerance, but acceptance and love and welcome because of what someone else did. I I had lunch with somebody just a few days ago whose dad, non-Christian his whole life, and I asked him if I could use this example. The son is a pastor. Dad proud of his son, but doesn't really care about this stuff. Two months before he dies, he starts to sense that God is, work, is at work in his life. Four hours before he dies, he clearly articulates faith in Jesus Christ. Where he was saved, I don't know, but four hours before he dies, he, he is able in his own way to articulate I believe in Jesus to save me from my sins. Four hours later, massive heart attack, and he dies. What is his standing before God? Second-class citizen? Behind the apostles? Fully righteous forever. Let me, let me leave you with one last example. And again, this is from Vanderbilt days. And I, when this happened, I thought, "Woo." I've got my Romans 4 illustration for the rest of my life. A guy that was involved in our uh, campus ministry was in Navy ROTC. And um, was in it the whole time in college, and we just knew that you know when he graduated, he was heading into his commitment as a, as a Navy officer. And right before he graduated, he found out something from the Navy. And I, I don't understand the details. I don't think he understood the details, but apparently this had not happened since World War II. The Navy came to him and said, we don't need you. So, the day he graduated from Vanderbilt, he was commissioned as an officer in the United States Navy and then honorably discharged. Meaning that for the rest of his life, he gets the privileges and the benefits of being a United States officer, I mean Navy officer, without serving. And I asked, I said, Shane, what have people said when you've told them this story? And he said, Well, some people go, man, that's pretty great, which tells you they they did not hear what you just what you just said. Some people just kind of go, that's unbelievable. That was sort of my my response. But he said that that his ROTC friends, it, it was some version of of blank you because. They, they were going into... The way they would get those benefits was they would have to serve and work for them, and they were just handed to him. All the benefit without the doing. And again, when I heard that story, I thought, justification file, sermon illustration, <sighs> What if our righteousness was not just on paper, but for real in our hearts, it was not what we did? Um, could we have joy even when we fail? Not rejoice about failing, but have joy as we fail, because we fail. Could we speak into one another's lives with good news rather than, here's, here's strategies for how I do better. We could say no to things because we wouldn't have to justify ourselves to God and others through how omnicompetent and busy we are. And we could say no and have margins, have productive lives, but we could have margins to know God and know people. May God make it so. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, take your word. Please drive it deep down in our hearts this good news that every man and woman, boy and girl in this room needs. Or for the person who's here who is uh, attracted by this but, but doesn't have saving faith, would you give it to him? Would you give it to her? Would you put it on their hearts to come to you with empty hands and say, help me. Have mercy on me, son of David. And then to watch your your kind hand at work. Lord, make us a community that loves, loves, that someone else did it for us. We ask this in Jesus' name.